Welcome to St. James Lutheran Church and School, Chicago. I hope and pray that the following message blesses you with peace and hope in Christ, who died and rose for you, for free. It is yours. If you'd like to support God's mission of giving life, hope, peace, joy, and love in the city of Chicago, go to stjames-lutheran.org. Peace. And peace to you from God, our Heavenly Father, and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So when we think about who we are as a people, in other words, as a group, oftentimes speeches factor into the stories that we tell ourselves. They help to form our identity. By this I mean, think about who we are as Americans. If you think back to history class, there are probably some key speeches that help us to construct our identity as people. You know, it's not a speech, but we think of, of course, the Declaration of Independence, where we say that we have inalienable rights. We think later on about the Gettysburg Address, where that gets kind of reinterpreted. And we might even think, you know, recently, we would think about Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech. You know, again, that call to equality, that call to fulfill our uh, initial principles of our founding, freedom, right? There are speeches that define us in other areas of life, too, and I would say actually help shape the course of culture. And one of those speeches is the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount influenced, we would say, culture generally, but also tells us who we are as Christians. It helps to form the basis of our identity as those who follow Jesus. Because in that speech, we find some really key, important themes for who we are as believers. It's within the Sermon on the Mount where we hear this call to treat the poor in spirit as if they are blessed by God himself. We hear the call to treat the peacemakers as those who are blessed, honor peacemakers first and foremost, rather than people who are conquerors, warriors, etc. So that's again a different radical call compared to what came before. And then I would say the most frustrating part about the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' command to love our enemies first and foremost. And while that quote is from Luke's gospel today, and Luke presents, I would say, the Sermon on the Plain as a sort of parallel to the Sermon on the Mount, nonetheless, the theme rings true. Jesus' ministry is really, I would say, summarized within this sermon, within the core of today's text. And I would say... Within the core of Jesus' ministry, we see two key themes, and the first being the way that he flips our notions of the way that the world should work on its head, and the second I would theme, maybe humorously, is his ministry is really all about frustrating people, isn't it, right? In the sense that we go to Jesus expecting to hear one thing, and yet we end up frustrated oftentimes by the way that he gives us a different answer, a different response than what we initially sought after. And when we hear this teaching, this command to love our enemies, I think we end up personally frustrated by what Jesus tells us today. And I think if you were honest with yourself, just like I think about it now, we kind of bristle at the thought of loving our enemies, right? Those are exactly the people we shouldn't love, and we feel as though we have justified grievances against. And all the more surprising is the lengths that Jesus goes to make his point clear. He doesn't say, tolerate your enemy. He doesn't say, leave your enemy at arm's length. 
Instead, he says to love your enemy full stop. Love your enemy. Not the way that we expect the world to work. So as an exercise this morning, what I want us to do is think about those enemies that we have in life. You need to close your eyes and imagine this for a moment. Feel free to do so. And I think especially in our kind of hyper-polarized, hyper-partisan times, we can probably call to mind some people that frustrate us maybe publicly, right? media-wise. There's people who their voice comes on the radio and we have to just turn it off because we can't even tolerate hearing this person. There's a maybe clear example of having an enemy. Maybe there's somebody you hate learning about historically, right? Somebody that's easily identifiable that you don't like learning about because you treat them as an enemy first and foremost. But then I would say go a little bit more personally, right? Go a little bit more close to home. Think about the people who maybe have harmed you. Think about the people who have broken a friendship because of something that they have done. Think about the family member who's pushed one too many buttons and now is cast off in that enemy territory. Again, one that you feel as though you've got justified grievances against, and then come back to Jesus's command. Love your enemy. And if you're anything like me, you probably feel like you can't do it. You probably feel frustrated at Jesus for even giving you that sort of command and that sort of teaching as part of what it means to be a Christian and a Jesus follower. And it's frustrating to be given a, a command to do something that feels so far beyond our doing. And I think it makes us kind of wonder about why Jesus operates this way, why he constantly desires to flip the script on its head, to turn the tables on what we would expect, right? We want to hold the people with whom we have justified grievances against accountable, right? We want to not give them mercy, not give them love, but instead we want justice. We want maybe vengeance even, right? I always think about how whenever we're going through narrative fiction, whether it's a TV show, a movie, a book, you know, there are villains that are, are villains for clear reasons. And we want the hero to do the vengeful thing, to get payback for all those things that we've been having to read about to watch as the viewer. And yet, as is so often the case, it's exactly in those moments when a hero has the upper hand that the heart of that character is revealed. And in that moment, we see that mercy might not be what we want, but in fact, it's actually the right thing. It's actually what allows justice to prevail within the story. This is true not just in narrative fiction, but it's also true in our biblical narrative as well. And I love the way that the church has paired together our readings today with the story of Joseph to go alongside this section of Jesus's teaching in Luke. And if anyone has justified reasons to be upset with the people around them, I would say it's Joseph, right? When we think about the story of Joseph, just as kind of a quick recap, Joseph is somebody who has been abused by his family members, like in real ways. Of course, Joseph is loved by his father. This makes his siblings jealous. And what do they do? They toss him down a well. They beat him up. They throw him into slavery. As if that's not enough, they stage a crime scene. They pour blood, animal, animal blood on his, uh, his clothing. And uh, they tell his father that he's been killed, that there's nothing more that can be done for poor Joseph. So hopefully none of us have it that bad. And yet, in this moment, we get to see something about who God is as he operates through Joseph. And I love Joseph's response because it is so deep 
and demonstrates the love of God so well. And we'll just recap to hear it again. Joseph says, Now your eyes see and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see that it is my mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt and of all that you have seen. Hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept upon his neck and he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. This is a beautiful expression of the divine love of God that manifests in moments like this. The kind of love that just signals that the relationship has been totally mended, reconciled, and people are once again in unity, union, communion, everything along those lines. And so it's precisely in moments like this that we get a glimpse of what that divine love, that divine mercy of God looks like. Joseph does not give his family members what they deserve, but instead he gives them what God would have him do, which is, again, mercy in that situation. Love, which reconciles those around us. It goes against our nature, but again, it pours open the heart of God to us through stories like this. And what I love about this story is that it tells us I would say, at his core, who God is. Because again, God is love all the way through. We just talked yesterday during our catechesis class about how even creation itself is done because God is love. And he gives us all these good gifts of even creation itself out of divine mercy. This is who he is. And the important part about love is that it's not just a feeling either. Instead, love is actually an act. It's to will the good of the other. That's the way the church fathers have talked about love up and down the century, to will the good of the other is what it means to love another. So the most real expressions of love then can be seen in moments like this, when the good of the other is willed. Love is shown precisely to the people who have wronged these characters and who have wronged you as well. And what I love is the way that then Jesus goes on and and explains this to us in such beautiful language and really, I would say, challenges us again in terms of our understanding of what the love of God means as it takes shape in our lives. Hear what Jesus says, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. So the ultimate test of love then is when it's shown to those who are supremely unlovable, those who won't love us back. That's where we see the love of God in action. Because here's the reason why. We can't simply think of love as if it's a business transaction, as if it's something that we invest in expecting to get a return back. That's not how the love of God operates. Instead, The love of God is demonstrated when it's shown to those who are unlovable and then something surprising happens afterwards, right? Because again, that showing love to somebody who's unlovable is a difficult task. It's a tall order. It's the kind of thing that most of us feel as though we simply can't accomplish. And I'm sure you can recall a moment in your life when somebody who was supremely unlovable was in our midst and we failed to show the love to them, that love of God to them. 
I think we can all think of a moment in our, our lives. But here's the point, here's the point. The epiphany comes when this whole situation is flipped on its head. We recognize that we, first and foremost, were the unlovable ones. We were the enemies of God as a result of sin, right? We're told that sin casts us far off from God, separates us from the light, the love, the warmth of God. So we were the unlovable ones, and that by nature creates that chasm between us and God. Think about Adam for a moment. Adam sins, and what does he do? He hides his shame. There it is. Moves out of the presence of God, or at least attempts to. Peter similarly does the same thing. Peter is really a focus of Lent as we build up to Lent in the weeks ahead. And during Holy Week, we see a really concrete example of this. Peter denies Christ three times. Sinful, right? And ends up separated, right? He leaves the cross, leaves at least the passion narrative, in shame, separated from the love of God. But here's the good news. Here's the really good news. St. Paul tells us that in Romans 5, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In other words, he didn't wait for us to become righteous. He didn't wait for us to do all the right things in order to make us worthy of God's standard of love. Instead, he comes towards us and envelops us in that love that in fact is transformative. That's why Peter ends up reinstated. That's why Adam finds his redemption in Christ Jesus. So here's what's amazing then about the love of God is that it doesn't just simply benefit the other. Instead, it actually makes the other good. It transforms them. It creates a clean heart within the person. So then I think what's great is that when God goes through that little exercise that we did before, when he imagines that person who has been his enemy, he doesn't see all the wrong things that they've done. Instead, through the lens of the cross, he sees Christ Jesus. More importantly, he sees Christ Jesus on the cross wherein the love of God is fully displayed, wherein God himself takes on flesh, suffers and dies for those who are unworthy. And yet that's the very thing that makes them worthy of the love of God. And this is really good news for you and for me because if attaining the love of God was somehow up to us, I would fall woefully short, and I'm sure you would agree that all of us would fall woefully short. But the love of God is different than the way society, our culture, expects things to operate. It's a free gift that is already yours because of the action that God has taken on your behalf in Christ Jesus. He's the one who first loves his enemies wholly, fully, completely, in this deeply transformative way so that we are no longer enemies of God, but as St. Paul tells us, we're in fact friends of God. We're in fact joined together, reconciled with Christ Jesus. So here's the, the challenge today, I would say, in our text. And I've said this before and I'll say it many times again. The love of God is paradoxical in the sense that we always want to have it, we want to hold it, we want to cling to it, and yet that's not quite how the love of God operates. It's not something we cling to in order to call it ours. Instead, the love of God is always on the move, right? The love of God from the Father to the Son, from the Son to the Spirit, through to the church, right? The love of God is always moving then from the church to our neighbor. We only have the love of God insofar as we give it away. That's reflected all throughout what we just read from Luke. So in other words, we've only got it when we're giving it to not just our neighbor, 
but in fact, giving that love to our enemy. So again, here's the challenge. Hear these words of today's text. Be merciful, even as your father is merciful. And picture that enemy we thought of before in your mind as this takes shape in your life, in your calling as a Christian. And then when that feels difficult, when we recognize the way that we've fallen short in that calling, I would say that the point that we need to return to is the foot of the cross. That's the place where we come back to. Because when we stand at the foot of the cross, it's there where we're able to see the ultimate display of loving one's enemy. Where Christ Jesus dies for the sins of the world, and not just the world, but the people who are gathered there, persecuting him, putting him to death. He loves those people too. And that kind of love transforms everything about the world around us. Wherein we're able to recognize that our calling is found when we're told that we are no longer enemies of God, far off, but instead we're reconciled to God as Christ Jesus dies for us, even while we're sinners. And now we can rightly say that we are no longer sinners, but in fact, saints of God in Christ Jesus, set free to love our enemies. Amen. And now may the peace that surpasses all understanding keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.